Hey everyone, on this week's episode we have Carol McDonald. As an international music expert, Carol brings over a quarter of a century's worth of experience in the industry to the First Act podcast. Listen as Harry talks with Carol about her storied career and how she has become so incredibly successful. You are guaranteed to hear some amazing stories and learn a great deal in this week's episode of the First Act Podcast. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Carol, thank you so much for making time to appear on the podcast and to let me interview you and ask you a million questions about your career. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, you know, before we get into your story, um, I know that you were talking to me a little bit about this new artist that you've been managing named Owen. Yeah. Is he Christian, Owen? Yeah, he is. Okay, so my homework was good. So I was digging around and I saw that he was actually in a newly released Taylor Swift music video. He was in Lover. He was the love interest in Lover. And uh, and he, his background is a dancer. And the, the way, you know, the way that he ended up in Lover is because he toured with Taylor Swift. So he has a relationship with her and professional relationship with her. And they know each other. And she asked him if he would be the love interest in the Lover video, which I happen to love that particular video. I think it's great. And I know I'm biased, but I think it's a really strong video. But yes, he is. He's his his in his alter ego he is christian owens and then uh as a recording artist he's owen o-w-e-n-n yeah you know i don't normally like like we highlight artists here and there especially as they're you know developing or if they're newly signed to either a manager or a label or whoever the guest is but i thought that that was particularly interesting when i was digging around i was like well who's this owen character that she's managing and maybe i can catch you know some snippets of his upcoming is it a single or his album that's being released we're putting we're putting a single out on friday friday march 26th um and which is fantastic he signed to island records and because of covid everything kind of slowed down it was a a tough time to launch a brand new artist it was hard to do photo shoots and do video shoots and create all the assets that you need to launch a project and so it really slowed us down and to be honest, we had planned on having a single out much, much sooner when we initially signed with Island. But um, he has got a track coming out called Baby Girl on Friday, March 26th. And I'm so excited. I can't tell you this has been so long coming. And he is, you know, he has this uh, other world that he has lived in for the past decade where he's been a dancer at the top of his game. I mean, he was on stage with Beyonce at Coachella. He, the very first tour he did when he was 19 years old was with Rihanna. So he's really at the A-list in terms of, of dancers and music. And now he is about to break through and become a singer, songwriter, musician, artist in his own right, which is really exciting. So not only is he a talented dancer, now he's going to be his own singer, songwriter, recording artist, and he's going to have his own dancers now. Well, that's the plan when we get back on the road. That's very cool. Does he choreograph as well? He absolutely does. Yeah. Yes, he does. And uh, he actually, as a favor to a friend, he just danced on the Grammys with Megan Thee Stallion. That's really awesome. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. I co-manage him with Chris Taylor, who is the... um, global head of music for E1 Music, uh, Entertainment One, and uh, which are, you know, a huge production company. They have a film division and a TV division and a publishing division and a music division. And uh, Chris runs music. He is actually also from Toronto, which is how we know each other. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. He used to be in a band very, very long time ago called One. And I, he was signed to Virgin Records in Canada and I was one's publicist which is how we know each other and I'm going back probably more decades than I'd care to but that's how Chris and I know each other and we now co-manage Owen under the E1 umbrella which is super exciting. It's funny how the the industry works like that and that's one of the reasons why we have this podcast is really to kind of shed light to you know more than just like behind the scenes but also like the importance of building relationships and really meeting people and 
having that air of credibility throughout your whole career, because you never know what might end up happening, what twists and turns your career will take or what other people's careers will take. So it's very important to be meeting everyone that you can and just maintaining these relationships because it's a fun industry and everyone should just kind of get along because you never know what, where your career is going to go. That hundred percent. Absolutely. And the number of times that I have had relationships with people and you lose touch and life happens. And I, you know, I left Canada, I moved to the UK and then I moved from the UK to the U S and, and, uh, you know, things happen so that you lose touch with people over time. And then you'll, you know, magically kind of circle back and reconnect and paths recross. And it's great. It's a great business for that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. Like you and I have a similar path. I, I went from, well, we're both from Canada just, are you from Toronto or are you from? Uh... I'm, I'm actually from Hamilton. I was born in Hamilton. Hammertown. Just a, yeah, the hammer. Exactly. So I, my parents left Hamilton when I was quite young, but technically that's where I'm from. Okay. Although I, when I talk to people who don't know Canadian geography, I'd say Toronto because, you know, they don't, if I said Hamilton, I would just get a glazed look. So I just say Toronto. Everyone from the GTA just says, yeah, Toronto. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Cool. Yeah, I'm from Montreal. And then um, in my last semester of college, I moved to the UK as well. And but I wasn't there for as long as you I was just there for six months about. And then I moved to New York. But I'm back now. So I want to hear all about your story. How did you end up getting started in music? Like, was it really just a passion thing? Um, Was your family a bunch of musicians? Where did it where did it all start? It was a hundred percent passion. I mean, I had a huge passion for music. I, I remember being in high school and I would be, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, hanging out with my friends and we'd go to the mall as you did. And often cases, and, and you know, they would be interested in buying clothes or makeup or whatever with their, with the money that they've had from their part-time job or the, you know, allowance or whatever it is. And I always went and spent my money on records and my friends would kind of be a little like, yeah, we get it. We know what that music is great and we love listening to the radio, but really? And um, I had this epiphany at one point in my, probably just before I was getting ready to go to university or college. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a business behind this. I mean, music is fantastic. And, but I, and I played piano, but I was never, ever going to make it as a musician. I didn't have the, I didn't have the ability and I didn't have the determination to become a professional musician. But I did think, you know, there's got to be a business behind this. Like somebody's got to be creating these pieces of work and putting them together. And, you know, that was in the days of vinyl and you would get these amazing packages. And I thought there's a whole business behind this. I'm, I need to dig into this. I need to look into this because this might be the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I ended up going to, to post-secondary education and getting a degree in international studies, which was essentially political science and economics Um, And then once I got that, it was like, okay, I'm just going to park that. And now I'm going to delve into this music business thing. And were a lot of people going to college at the time? Because, you know, I I know we don't want to date you. You know, you were saying, oh, too many decades to go back. But I'm just, you know, I kind of want to get a rough idea. Like what was going to college as it was like, as it is today, where it's like a bachelor's degree now isn't even really enough in a lot in a lot of cases. Yeah, it was, I mean, a lot of my high school friends chose to go to university, but it probably wasn't as common as it is now, or as it was, you know, in the 90s or the early 2000s. I feel like when I went into the music industry, it was very uncommon to have a degree. A lot of people had risen up, they had worked in retail, and then they got a job at a record company. And if they were good at they, what they did, they rose to the top of the pile. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessary to have a degree to work at a record company. And things have changed now. Record companies, you know, for a while, and certainly right now are looking to hire people that have degrees and often cases have MBAs. Right. So it's very, very different. I mean, for me to get a, to get my degree, was something that I did because I wanted A, to have a plan B, and also because I wanted to um, make my parents happy. 
and it was important to them that I go to university. And I, neither of them had had the opportunity. I had the opportunity and I have absolutely no regrets. I, you know, I have some of my closest friends to this day are people that I met when I went to school. Yeah. You, you, was, there's a lot of camaraderie when you're, when you're in school, there's clubs to get involved in. I know that a lot of, a lot of um, the listenership, they are in college or they're in high school at least, and they're considering college and, you know, probably applying to them now or just, just yeah. applications. So, okay. So you're in college you're, you're, or actually you're before college, you're in your late teens and you decide that there is, there is something going on behind just these records. And so, so what was your first exposure to, I guess, the business side of it? I guess my very first job in the music industry was I worked at a cable TV station called Much Music, which was based in Toronto. And I worked in the what they called the traffic department. And the traffic department was trafficking TV commercials. So you would schedule TV commercials into the TV break. So it was sort of if you had a two minute commercial break, you couldn't have competing products in the same break. So you couldn't have a commercial for Ford and a commercial for General Motors in the same break. So that's what you did. You trafficked the TV commercials, made sure there was no conflicts, made sure that they fit into the, you know, made sure that you had four 30 second spots in the two minute commercial, things like that. And it was back at a time when things were much, much less computerized. I mean, I remember working in a situation where I didn't have a computer on my desk. We had a computer station that you went to to input the data. But that was my very first job. And I would, they, so the Much Music was a, a video station. They were Canada's answer to MTV. And I would intern in the evening. So I would go and work in the traffic department sort of as a nine to five job. And then at five or six o'clock, when I finished my day gig, I would go into the Much Music studio and I would intern for people down there just to learn the music business. And I would work reps who came in from record companies who were pitching their videos to the people that worked there. And that was essentially my first industry job. Interesting. So, so was this during college or was after college? I guess if you were working in nine to five, it must have been after you graduated. Yeah, it was after I graduated. The university thing, I kind of was a little bit like, let's get it out of the way. So I kind of knocked, like, was able to cross it off the list. And then I focused on the music stuff. Cool. That's fine. Because um, I was going to ask you, you know, it sounds like working in the traffic department wasn't really, it, like, it, it's it's music adjacent, right? Because you're working at a Completely. media company. But then, you know, you're all, you're passionate about music, but then you get your first gig is not exactly in music. So I was going to ask, how did you stay passionate and focused? And, you know, maybe you weren't doing exactly what you wanted to be doing, but I guess you made up for it with, by, with your Batman job or your Batwoman job. Yeah, exactly. And I found it very, the environment was great. A lot of people, even if you were working in an administrative kind of role, it was still a lot of fun, young, creative people who were there. A lot of them were people like me who wanted to get into the music industry and were using it as a stepping stone. Yeah. And you constantly at that particular time in the evolution of, of um, music video television, you constantly had big names coming into the building. So, you know, you all the excitement would be, oh my God, Duran Duran are coming in today or whoever it might've been. So the energy level was very, very high. And then, as you say, I had my interning thing in the evenings, which was really, really fun because you were working in the studio then and it was just a great environment. Right, and you're meeting the people that you wanna be meeting. Exactly, exactly. And then from there, I started applying to record companies. That was sort of the transition. I can't actually remember how long I worked at Much Music, probably about 18 months, I'm guessing. And then I started putting out applications to record companies because I had kind of at that, by that point, I had established that that was where I wanted to be. Okay. And so where did you end up landing? My very first job was a company called Polygram, who many years ago were a standalone record company and now are owned by Universal Records, who are the biggest record company in the world, record Did label. They bought first major. by MCA? That's entirely possible. At the time, there was a number of acquisitions that were happening. I think Polygram bought somebody and then somebody bought Polygram and, you know, here we are two and a half decades later and Universal owns most of it. 
But yes, that was who I worked for initially. And they had a Toronto office and I was what they call a promotion rep, which meant that I would go to radio stations and essentially pitch the music that we were working and try to get those songs on the radio. So I love that. I love that. Okay. I had no idea that you worked in this, in this domain. So this is cool. So how did you build these relationships? And then how did you, how did you make it so that you were successful in actually landing the placements? I think for me and probably for most of the people that were working at labels and doing radio promotion at the time, you had to have a passion for the music. You know, it wasn't like you were selling shoes. I mean, you were selling music, you were pitching music to get it on the radio. But, you know, if you had a passion for it, it made the job so much easier and so much fun. And it was so, you know, I could go in and I could talk about Bon Jovi for hours on end if people would listen to me. And it didn't always work. You didn't always get your song on the radio, particularly if it was a developing artist and somebody that they had never heard of before. I mean, if you walk into a radio station with a new track from, at the time, Bon Jovi or the Rolling Stones or somebody like that, of course they're going to play it. It's a huge artist and it it behooves the radio station to have it on their you know, have it on their playlist. Right. Um, if it's a if it's a an unknown artist, it's harder to uh, sort of break through into that mainstream and become well known. But it was all part of a. You would educate them about the artist. Often, you could take examples of where the artist was successful in other parts of the world. So you know, perhaps it was. And I didn't actually work this band, but just as an example, it was In Excess who were hugely successful in Australia before they ever broke in North America. And so you could go in and go, yes, they're a new band in Canada or they're a new band in the States or they're a new band in the UK, but they have this huge following in Australia and listen to the great songs that they write. And that would happen with other artists as well. Polygram had a lot of acts that were English, that were British acts. So you often had an act that had tremendous success in the UK that you were trying to break in Canada and the US. And and that would definitely help if you had another territory that already had some success. Right, because you were able to draw on that story. You were able to use it to your advantage to really play up to the artist and say, well, you exactly. know, following out here and they're definitely going to do well in this market. You don't want to, you don't want to be sleeping on this band. Exactly. hundred percent. That was exactly it. Yeah. It's a big sales job. So you went from working in traffic to an interning at night to then having more of a sales job in the radio division. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. So at what point did you say, you know what, I want to change my, my role? I don't know that I ever wanted to change my role per se. I mean, I love doing radio promotion, but I got an offer from Virgin Records to come and be their head of publicity. And when I say their head of publicity, I was the only person in the department. So, you know, I was de facto the head. But Virgin Records at the time had a Toronto office and well, they had offices across the country in most major cities. And the woman who ran the marketing and promotion team uh, offered me a job to come in and be the publicist for them. And Richard Branson still owned Virgin Records at the time. Virgin is now, like many other labels, as I've already mentioned, owned by Universal Music. Right. Um, But at the time, it was owned by Richard Branson, the entrepreneur. And that was really exciting to me. I thought that was really great. And I liked the roster that they had. Their office was in this um, beautiful old uh, turn of the century mansion in downtown Toronto. The team were fantastic. It was a very kind of family vibe. And um, the company was small, really, like, you know, even globally, it was a small company, but it was fun. And there was a real focus on artist development. You know, we had the opportunity to break artists that went on to have really huge careers. I mean, at the time we broke Paula Abdul and well, now she's known more for doing TV, you know, shows, dance shows and music shows. And probably if you ask somebody 20 years old, they would have no idea who Paula Abdul was. But at the time, she had a huge career and we had a chance to break her. I worked with Lenny Kravitz and Lenny went from playing 
tiny clubs to playing really big, you know, arena sized gigs. And that was exciting. It was really exciting to be able to develop those artists and, and see their star rise. Right. And if you're working in PR, then you must have gotten to meet some of these artists face to face, right? I did. I had the opportunity to meet with and to work with a lot of them because what would happen is often they would come to town on what we would call a promotion trip. And the promotion trip was for them to do promotion for their album or their single or whatever they were promoting at the time. And they would go into radio stations and maybe do interviews. Maybe they would do an acoustic performance. They would sit down and they would talk to newspapers and magazines. This was pre-blogs, so everything was print. Or they would do, depending on how big the artist was, um, you know, maybe we would get them on a television show. So I was the person, as, as the publicist, I was the person who would put that schedule together and work with the artist and ensure that everything got done smoothly and that the artist was happy and management was happy and that media was happy because our media partners were, you know, hugely important. We needed them. And if something went wrong with one artist, you didn't want to burn any bridges for the next time you had another artist that you wanted them to speak with. Right. So how did you, so if you were de facto the head of PR for Virgin Records and being the only person in this office, you must've been wearing a lot of hats in this department and you must have been making a lot of the decisions for where the artist should be going in Canada. I suppose I did, but everything was done sort of en masse. And by that, I mean that the person who did radio promotion would have a opinion about the publicity and I might have an opinion about a marketing plan and somebody else might have opinion about Um, You know, I don't know, because it was such a small team, everybody was involved in everything, which was great. I mean, I welcomed that. And it gave me an opportunity to learn by osmosis. You know, I ended up going on to become a marketing person. And a lot of what I learned at Virgin Records, even while I was doing the publicity gig, was informed by what I overheard from the marketing team. And I learned from the marketing team, and we would sit in meetings, and I would I was essentially getting an education in marketing, even though I was the publicist and probably vice versa as well. Yeah, because you're, you're sitting in on these meetings. I didn't realize how, how small the team was so that you were able to really just bounce ideas off each other and kind of plan the whole thing together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was very much a group effort. Cool. So how long did you work at Virgin for? I worked at Virgin for probably two years before they were sold to EMI and then Virgin Records got was sold to EMI who subsequently in 2013 were sold to Universal. It seems to always come back to Universal music these days but I worked for Virgin for about two years and then they were sold to EMI Records and EMI in Canada left Virgin as a standalone entity for a number of years before they rolled Virgin into EMI and and made it an imprint. So I was at Virgin till I think 1997 and it was owned by EMI at the time. And I went and ended up working for EMI in a marketing role. I was, I was given the position of marketing director at EMI. So I was at Virgin for two years before EMI bought it. And then probably another couple of years. Now that the label changed ownerships from Virgin to EMI, you decided to have more of a marketing role or you were offered some sort of a marketing role. I was. I actually, I ended up taking on the position of, uh, I think it was marketing manager at Virgin. So I went from publicist to marketing manager and at, at Virgin itself. And then I went from marketing manager to director of marketing at EMI. And that meant that I was working a different ro- even though it was the same overall company, I was working a different roster. I went to a different location for work. Um, EMI was out near Lester Pearson Airport, whereas the Virgin office was downtown at this point. You know, I had the opportunity to work with some great artists. I worked with, you know, one of my favorites to work with was Tina Turner. She was just an absolute gem and a wonderful, wonderful soul to work with. And of course, I'm going to completely gap on who else I worked with at EMI at the moment. But yeah, so I did that in 97. Cool. You know, I want to ask at this point in your career, 
what constituted good work? It's a highly competitive role working in entertainment, working in music. And you've had this luxury at, at such a young age at this point to be, you know, working in traffic for a media company and then also interning in this in the music studio at night but then also being able to work in PR and meeting artists face to face and then now you're you know you the company was bought by another company and now you're in a marketing role so like what constituted good work and how, like what was your work ethic like I mean it, it was a it was very much a never off or always on kind of situation but it was there it was different days we didn't have cell phones in the early days we didn't even have computers so it was very familial it was fun it was a lot of fun you did have those moments of oh my god i get to do this and somebody pays me for it you know it was you would go to a concert and and it was you know, technically it was work. You needed to be there. You were expected to be there. You would do what we call a meet and greet with the artist. So the artist could meet the label or see them again if they had already met the label on a previous visit and show your support for the artist and make them aware that, yeah, we're all out here to support you. We're really excited to have you on the label. It never felt like work. It was just it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And, you know, I still love to go to live concerts. I still get that buzz off it. But at the time, it sounds a little bit hokey to say this, but it really never felt like work. But we worked really, really hard. And I guess what constituted success was seeing an artist be successful. That was when you really got satisfaction. I mean, if you got a big radio station, you know, Saquon Montreal or Chum in Toronto at the time were huge stations and hugely influential because there was no streaming. It was all, it was radio. Radio was, you know, the main game in town. And if you got a song added to their playlist, like that was cause for celebration. If you launched a record and it came in at the top 10 of the sales chart, that was cause for celebration. If you had an artist who had previously sold clubs and was on tour and was now selling out, you know, arenas or even theaters, that was cause for celebration. It was, those were the markers where you thought, okay, we're doing a good job. We're getting through here. And, you know, a lot of it obviously was artists with huge talent and great songs who, in a lot of cases, made our jobs very, very easy. But there were times when you felt like, oh, I really contributed to this. I helped get this over the line. And that was a great, great feeling, a wonderful feeling. And it was exciting. And, you know, it was a, it was a wonderful time in my career. I absolutely loved it. Sounds great. It reminds me of when I used to work in concerts. It's like, you know, you have these moments when you're like, I can't believe somebody's paying me to go to shows and entertain other people and meet artists. And, you know, it's, it's really fun. It's a very rewarding industry to be working in. Yeah. And, and, it, and it has its perks. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. And then it, you know, the downside is you're kind of never off, but I suppose that's true of a lot of industries these days. Yeah. You know, I would use my downtime, right? Like, uh, like when I was booking concerts in New York City, like my day job from nine to seven, we'll say, with a very short lunch break, we would then, you know, we'd, we'd have dinner real quick. And then I would invite my friends out to come to concerts because, you know, I was able, you know, if, if you work at the venue and, you know, if, if you're working directly with the talent, you had that luxury where you're able to kind of bring people along to the shows. Yeah. And, you know, I, and my friends would kind of do their own thing and I would kind of jump in and out. So I know that you worked at EMI in Canada and then you ended up working in the UK for EMI as well. But in between, you worked for MTV Canada. How did that happen? I did. Um, I got headhunted by MTV Canada to work for them. And it was at a time when the music industry was going into a bit of a rough patch. Downloading was happening. Illegal downloading was happening. We were seeing sales fall off. You could see that we were going to struggle, that the industry was going to struggle. And I thought at the time, I can ostensibly stay in music, but I can work in media, which will broaden my skill base and give me new challenges and, you know, work for a, one of the world's biggest brands and take part in a Canadian launch. Truthfully, it wasn't what I expected it to be. I was there for a very short period of time and I left. I was there for less than a year. And I think part of it was, you know, MTV is such a huge 
brand that a Canadian version of MTV is essentially just a branch office. You didn't have a lot of decision-making power. It was very hard to Canadianize that MTV launch. And I found that very frustrating because I have always been very staunchly proud of my Canadian heritage. And I didn't want to just be a smaller carbon copy of MTV US. So it wasn't a fantastic experience, but it was certainly a learning experience for sure. And I was very fortunate in that I didn't burn any bridges with EMI. When I left, I left on very good terms. And I kept in touch with everybody. And when I sort of put the word out that I wasn't particularly happy, I was very lucky because EMI said to me, well, we've actually got a role, but it's based in London. How would you feel about that? And I was like, oh, my goodness, I would, you know, that's sort of my dream is to work in the music industry in London, in the UK. And things, you know, things worked out. If I had stayed in Toronto working for EMI and had never left to go to MTV, I'm not sure that the London situation would have happened at the time that it did. And so I felt like that was an opportunity that I couldn't say no to. So I grabbed it and I moved to London. Wow. And so what did your family think of that? Because now you're just leaving everyone. You're kind of leaving everything that you know. Yeah, I was, but I knew that I would be back several times a year. My family had an open invitation to come and visit, and I think they were excited for me. They knew how excited I was about moving to the UK. They knew how much I loved my job, and so they were very, very supportive, which was wonderful. They didn't make it difficult at all. And so was this for a marketing role as well, or was it, or was it a different role? I went into a team of people that were part of what they call the international team and international in a record label is responsible for working in artists globally. So it's very much a B2B kind of role. So you're not working directly with the media. What you're, you're working more with your partners, your, in my case, EMI partners around the globe. So sitting in London, I would take, for example, let's just say Coldplay had a new record coming out. And I would work very closely with the record company, the EMI companies around the world to make sure that the record was set up properly, that we had all the assets that we needed. There were some markets, you know, obviously America and well, North America, even though Coldplay are an English band, North America was a huge, huge market for Coldplay. And I had worked with Coldplay when I was still based at EMI in Toronto. So it was great. I, had, I knew their manager. I had a relationship there. But, you know, you wanted to make sure that the big markets, particularly the USA, had everything they needed to make this album as successful as it could possibly be. And sometimes that meant that what they actually needed was the band. They needed the band to come in on promotion. And somebody from the international department would travel with them and make sure that everything went smoothly when the band was on this promotion trip. Sometimes there would be situations, and I'm quite sure this never happened with Coldplay, but there would be situations where you would be into a market like Japan that has very unique cultural sensibilities. And perhaps the album cover that we were releasing for a particular artist wasn't appropriate for the Japanese market and we would come up with something new that worked for them or sometimes we and, had and artists would you speak with representatives or with or with some of your business partners in Japan so that you made sure that things because you can't possibly know what's going to affect exactly. people all over the yes. world, right? That would be feedback that would come directly from EMI Japan. They would say to us, oh, you know, this is great, but it's not great for us. Right. And sometimes we would get Latin American markets, EMI companies from Latin American markets or from Spain saying to us, hey, you know what? We really like this artist and they're, you know, a completely unknown in our part of the world, but we think if we could do a Spanish language version of one of their songs, or if we could have them duet with a Spanish artist, an Argentinian artist or a Spanish artist or a Chilean artist or whoever it might've been, we think that gives us an opportunity to break this artist in our market to have them be really successful. America might come to you and go, you know what, this 
video is fantastic. Now we want to take the song and we want to put it in a television commercial. You know, how do we make that happen? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of things at play. You were dealing with the record company in those markets. So as I said, it was a very much B2B kind of role. And I loved doing international. I really loved it. I thought it was great. I loved the, I loved seeing these artists be successful around the world there was a lot of traveling that went with the art, went with the job, with that particular position. You would travel with artists a lot. I worked with an artist who is not particularly well known in North America. Uh, his name is Robbie Williams, and he was massively successful in the UK, Western Europe, Australia. I mean, almost every single market except North America. And at this particular point in time, which is the 2000s, he was probably the most successful male solo artist on the planet. I mean, he was massive, just like I said, not in North America. And I traveled with him a huge amount. I went to Australia with him. I went to Japan with him. I went to Latin America with him. I did a huge amount of traveling. And I think I did that role for about seven years. And I just found, I just got burnt out on the traveling. It's it's hard to so travel all the time. So what do you do when you're, when you're traveling with the artist? Because I know that the artists, when they're traveling and going on tour, they usually have like their, their teams, right? They'll have like a tour manager. They'll have the road manager. They'll have like their whole touring team. And then sometimes even their, their manager will come out as well. So yeah, this wasn't traveling with them on tour. This was doing promotion and set up for projects. So, okay, so it's a different sort would, of tour. Yeah, well, it, yeah, promotional tour. That's what yeah. we used to call them. So you would go to Germany and do their version of the Fallon show and or Kimmel, their version of that. You would go to France and do the same thing. You would go to Japan and do the big talk shows there and do radio interviews and press interviews. And so we would do a lot of promotion to set these records up and create anticipation for them. And that was the kind of traveling I was doing. So it wasn't, you know, going from market to market on tour. Sometimes I would fly out and do a, and go see a concert just because it was great to have a, an EMI presence on a tour date where it was sort of like, oh, they're flying in from London to see us. That's really exciting. Obviously, we're important to the label if they're sending people out to see our concert in right. Wisconsin or whatever it was. So, but mostly it was promotional tours and it was just the, the travel was exhausting because you would be working more than one artist at the time, at a time. So, you know, I might have been on the road with Robbie Williams going to Japan and I would come back and I'd be home for a week. And then I would be going to Sydney with Katy Perry, or, you know, it was, it was a lot of travel and it was a lot of, demands on my personal life that I sort of, I felt like my health was suffering in that I was just tired all the time mm-hmm. and not, you know, working out and not keeping a healthy lifestyle, drinking too much coffee, that kind of thing. And, and I decided that after seven years of working in international, that I had kind of come to the end of that line. And right. then I switched to working for EMI domestically. So I was still in London And I was asked to take on the role of vice president of marketing for EMI in the UK, which meant I did much less travel because I was just focused on the UK market and releasing records in the UK. So whether it was Katy Perry or Robbie Williams or Radiohead or, you know, whoever it might have been, I was responsible for those releases in the US or in the UK rather, but it meant that I just stayed in the UK unless I wanted to get on a plane and travel somewhere. That's so cool. Like, you know, I, I know that for whoever's listening right now, for, for everyone who's who's hearing what you're saying, it's probably like, wow, you know, she has this great career. She gets to travel the world with Coldplay or with Katy Perry or Robbie Williams. And, you know, and 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 from your perspective, like the real experience of it is it sounds glamorous, but it's exhausting. And, and, and it takes it is, it is it's it's you know it's I, I remember this amusing story and I was living in London and I it was a Sunday and I was on my way to an airport and I was flying somewhere with one with a very big artist and I was flying somewhere I was flying to somewhere in Europe 
And in fact, I think it may have been Easter Sunday. So it was a long weekend. And a friend of mine called me and uh, when I was in, in my car on my way to the airport and said, you know, hey, do you want to have dinner tonight? Would you like to come over for Easter dinner? And I said, I can't. I'm on my way to the airport. I'm flying. And I, a lot of artists would fly private and not fly commercial. And I said, I'm flying to Cologne or Paris or whatever it was at the time right. with, you know, X, Y, and Z artist. And I was really kind of bummed out about it, that I was missing seeing my friends, that I was missing the long weekend. And, and my friend laughed and she said, I can't believe this. You're flying to Paris with one of the most famous rock stars on the planet and you're bummed out about it on a private plane and you're bummed out about it. Yeah. But it was just, you know, it, it was the job. And it, there were parts of it that were amazing and super glamorous and, and luxury and, you know, and, and absolutely wonderful. It's just, you know, there were times when it was just a job. Right. For sure. Because definitely your personal life take, takes the sacrifice. When, when oh, hugely. Like yeah. There were times when I would come home and, you know, drop a bag and do laundry and pack another bag because I was going to a different climate. And, and that was exciting and exhilarating. And, and sometimes it was just exhausting. Did you get to have fun? Like, you know, like I know, I know that part of the job is definitely fun, but when you're doing so much traveling, did you have any downtime to kind of like do your own thing where, wherever you're traveling? Occasionally, well, more than occasionally, often what I would do is I would try and if we were in a city on a, doing a promotional visit on a Friday or a Monday, I would try and tag on a weekend. So I would maybe fly in on my own you know, on a Saturday morning, if the promo trip was on the Monday and spend the weekend in the city, it's sort of like, I remember once going to Copenhagen and I was going there with a, on a promo trip with an artist and they were arriving into Copenhagen for promotion on the Monday afternoon. And I went in on the Friday night and spent the weekend in Copenhagen and had a weekend off and got to explore the city because I'd never been before and I wanted to enjoy it. And that was great. Or sometimes we would end a promo trip on a Friday in a city and the artist was flying back to London or LA or New York or wherever they happen to live. And I would stay on for the weekend and fly back to London on the Sunday night, maybe. So I would do that where it was where I was able to. And that was great. I mean, one of the wonderful things about my job at that time, and one of the wonderful things about living in London was, it was so easy to go to Europe. I mean, I remember a couple, I have a very close friend who lives in Paris and moved to Paris when I was living in London. And there would be the occasional time when I would literally go to Paris for lunch. I would take the Eurostar over in the morning and meet my friend for lunch and come back on the three or the four o'clock afternoon Eurostar. And it was, you know, it was one of the wonderful things about living in London. You could go to Rome for the weekend or, uh, you know, it was, it was very easy to do that, which was fantastic and one of the things that I really miss about not being in London anymore yeah because you know we grew up in Canada where low-key we're like the second largest country in the world or third largest whatever we are but like mm -hmm. flying to Vancouver is six hours driving to Vancouver is five days each way yeah <laughs> right exactly so, and we're and not used to that you know even going to New York takes at least you know it's an hour flight I guess it's not so bad but like like I, when I was living in London, like I, I took like an hour flight to Morocco for a week. Yeah. You know, it, it, was, exactly. it was different. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, the geographical, you know, positioning of these places makes it easy to travel to certain parts of the world. I mean, I, when I was a kid, my family was very much, my parents were very much about seeing Canada and I was lucky. I mean, we literally went from, coast to coast on holidays you know I went as far as Vancouver Island when I was a kid and then the other way I went to the Maritimes and that was great so I'm a big fan of exploring my own country and and did that but then when I got to London it was nice to be able to do some traveling and then with the exception of the last year I've really tried to see as much of the states as I as I can since I moved here. So at what point did you decide that, you know, you're done with London and you're going to move to Los Angeles? I decided that 
um, well, first of all, I had been coming to Los Angeles for business on, on when I particularly when I was doing the international role. And when I worked for Virgin and EMI in Toronto, I would often come to L.A. Uh, so I was coming to L.A. frequently, probably sometimes once a quarter, sometimes twice a year. But I came regularly for a very, very long time. And I always vowed I would never live in L.A. And I decided, I started thinking about maybe it's a possibility right around 2013, which was when EMI was sold to Universal. And I started thinking that maybe I was going to leave record companies. By 2013, streaming was becoming prevalent and I felt like I had really had the opportunity to work for record companies in the heyday and do real artist development, which I loved doing. And I felt like artist development wasn't as important to record companies anymore. It wasn't part of their business model or it wasn't uh, they, as much as it had been. Artists, they want the artists to come in already developed. Exactly. And I understand that. I completely get it. It just wasn't for me anymore. So when EMI was sold to Universal, I started thinking about leaving the recorded music business. And I started thinking about moving to LA. And I have to be honest, that was all driven by weather. I mean, I love London. And when the sun shines, I think it's one of the greatest cities on the planet. But the sun doesn't shine as frequently as I would like it to. It's very... It's very cloudy. It's very gray. It's very overcast a lot of the time. And I started to think, okay, where can I go that is sort of where the crosshairs line up in terms of the weather that I want and working in the industry that I want? Because I knew I wanted to stay in entertainment, even though I was thinking very seriously about not working for a record company. And LA was kind of, it was that place. It was where the crosshairs lined up. And so it took me about two years to really get my head around the idea of moving to LA. And then I moved here in August of 2015. Okay. And so, you know, I, I guess if you weren't going to stay in entertainment, you would have really had to use your, your college degree in, in, yeah. but, but, but you did study international business, right? So I guess that, I guess it did pay off. You did, you did use it. Um, yeah. So, so now in LA, what was your game plan? You know, you moved there with what sort of a plan? Uh, I was working for a ticketing platform at the time, um, a resale platform via Gogo. On a contract basis, like a, as a consultant? Yeah, or? as a con as a consultant. It, I was working for them as a consultant, but it was a full time job. If that makes sense. And. Yeah. And I was doing that when I moved over. I had started doing that when I lived in London after I left EMI. They had asked me to come on board as their global head of music. And I was doing that when I moved to L.A. They were happy for me to be based in L.A. They didn't have an issue with that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was doing. And I found that the team that I was running were based in New York, in London. Some of them were in Switzerland. And it was... It wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. It was, I mean, they were a tech business and I met some lovely people there and I still am friends with some of them, but it was a tech business. It wasn't a music business. And I really wanted to stay in music in some capacity. And so I decided in, um, I guess it was early 2016. I hadn't been in LA that long and I decided that I was going to leave there and I honestly didn't know what I was going to do, but I started to kind of fall into the consulting, not planning to be a consultant. When I left the ticketing platform, people would call me up and say, hey, could you help me out with a marketing project? Could you help me out with a strategy plan? Could you help me advise my baby band on what they should be doing in order to get some traction? So it, I sort of became a consultant by accident. I really didn't plan on it. It, it just it literally just happened. And at no point did I, um, was that on the cards in terms of my game plan. And then after several months of this, I kind of thought, well, I guess I'm a consultant now. And I embraced it. And I started, you know, proactively looking for clients and things like that. And, and that was what I was doing. Well, what I'm still doing, but what I 
definitely was doing up until COVID. And then COVID kind of changed my direction somewhat. Okay. Yeah, because now, now you're working in management. And, and are you managing full-time or, or are you still doing some, some consulting work on the side? I'm still doing consulting work. I mean, the management is my priority. Um, I only manage one artist. Um, and as I said, I co-manage him with Chris Taylor. Um, Owen is the only artist I manage. I had always felt with management that I didn't want to manage. There was a, I, I didn't want to manage because I knew what a full-time job it was. As much as working at a record label or, you know, for Live Nation or whatever kind of role you have in a business can be a 24-7 job. Management is really a 24-7 job. You are on call for your artist all the time. It doesn't matter if it's midnight on a Sunday, you pick up the phone. And I hadn't found an artist that was looking for management that I felt that way about until I met Owen. And when I met Owen, I fell in love with his music um, he's a wonderful person with a great spirit. He's had all of this massive success in this other area of his life. And I thought, this is the artist that I'm willing to put it on the line for. This is the artist that I'm willing to take the 10 p.m. Sunday night phone call for. Um, and that was the first time that had happened. So the, the management thing is hugely important for me and it's probably the most important thing I do because it's ongoing it's all the time and because I love doing artist development and I have the chance to work with an artist who I think is going to be a superstar but I do have other consulting stuff that I do right. um, it's just you know it's having an artist having a, a client that you manage and then having a consulting client they're just on they're just different it's just different tiers for me and that's not to say that my consulting clients aren't important. They're hugely important. And, and I thank goodness every day that I have them. Well, I want to respect your time. I could totally talk to you. We could probably do an entire other episode all about management. Yeah. And, right. and I know that you also are working a little bit in film as, a, as the COVID. COVID compliance officer. <laughs> the COVID compliance officer. But Carol, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know that, you know, you've really done an incredible job painting a picture of what it's like, not only to work from, you know, go from working in Canada to the, to the UK, to the US and have a real global scope of the entertainment industry at large, but in particular, like really giving, you really painted a very clear picture of what it's like working at a label in the thick of like, you know, when record labels, like we're in like their, their heyday, like, like, you know, you, you worked in like what I like to call like the real music business. It's yeah, I feel like that too. And I feel really fortunate to have been able to, to be there when I did. So, well, I would love to come back and talk about management. So give me a call whenever you're ready to do that. Yeah, I'm totally into it. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to check back in and shout all of you out who are taking the time to check out the podcast, especially those of you who have been sharing it with your friends and writing me such nice messages on Apple Podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you or someone you know has an awesome story that you think should be shared with the world, feel free to write me directly on any of our socials at The First Act Podcast. Until then, stay safe.